0: We've got a lot to cover today and less time to do it. We have a special Sunday school for you today, two for the price of one, so after I 'm done, there'll be someone else coming up. i 'll tell you about that in a little bit, but um, we need to uh, begin. So I um, just want to thank you all for coming to, uh, this morning. Um, it's great to see everyone here um, Just to let you know what we're going through, this is the second of a three-week lesson on the sovereignty of God in our suffering. And we took a break last week, uh, so the last time we talked about this was two weeks ago. And I'd really encourage you, if you hadn't heard that lesson, if you weren't here, to go back and listen to that. The uh, main point from two weeks ago was, was, first of all, we were trying to answer the question, is God sovereign even over our suffering? That is to say, do we go through suffering and affliction uh, accidentally, or does he intend for us sovereignly to go through affliction and suffering? And we answer that question with a resounding yes, that God is sovereign even over the most painful suffering that that you and I go through. And to just give you one summary verse, uh, Ephesians 1.11 is a great summary verse just encapsulating the sovereignty of God. Ephesians 1.11 says that God works all things according to the counsel of his will, okay? So that's the sovereignty of God that we talked about, uh, but if we just stop at the sovereignty of God, it's, we still don't have enough uh, to give us comfort in our affliction, and we talked about we need more than just the bare sovereignty of God. We also need to know the goodness of God. And that's what we talked about last time. It's summarized in Romans 8, 28. You remember that, that God works all things together for good for those who love God and called according to his purpose. So those are the two things that we have to hold on to that scripture clearly teaches. He's sovereign in our pain and he's also good. And so just a picture of this is the sovereignty of God shows us that it's God's hand who's holding the scalpel in our life that's causing the pain. And then it's his goodness that tells us there's a good reason why we're going through the pain. Okay, so that was all of last week in in summary. The question we want to answer today is, what is some of the good that God is doing in our lives through suffering? Why does God ordain suffering? And that's the question we want to tackle today today. and to be sure, there are more. There, there are th- probably thousands of reasons why God is using suffering in our life. But before we just throw our hands up and say, "Well, I have no idea why God would allow this," uh, the Bible gives us many clear reasons why God intends for us to suffer and what He's trying to produce in us and in. Uh, people around us through suffering. So before we just throw up our hands and say God is unknowable, which He is, uh, He has reasons we can't figure out. Which He does. Uh, he's given us uh, very specific reasons, and we'll look through the, some of those today. And um, one one more note before we begin, I mentioned this last week, but the sovereignty of God in our suffering really is a doctrine that we need to understand and love before the day of trial comes in our life, that it's, it's best applied as preventative medicine before the day of trial comes. And the same thing can be said today, except from the opposite end, okay? So we're going to be looking at, we're going to be looking at why does God cause suffering? And this is best applied for a past suffering after some amount of time has passed. Just to give you an anecdote from... Um, our own experience. My wife and I went through some pretty painful suffering two years ago, and we, we were reading through a book about some of the good things that God does in suffering, and we read through that book about a month after the event had happened, and even a month later, uh, it was still a little bit too soon. It was still a little bit painful to read some of what we're going to be talking about today. So I just want to just want to um, maybe encourage you that if you're here this morning and you're currently going through some, some pretty deep suffering, I would just ask you to, to be patient and, um, and maybe come back to this lesson a couple months from now after some time and some healing has passed. Uh, because, again, there's a completely different way to approach someone who's in the middle of suffering than what we're going to be talking about today. So... Um, with all of that, is just a review and introduction. Uh, would, you, would you pray with me before we begin? Father, we are so thankful for this church. We are so thankful for the, the men and the women, the brothers and sisters you've given us here. Father, you have brought suffering in a tremendous amount to many people in this room. And Father, you have shown your goodness and your love through it all. And Father, we want to see more of that today from your word. So would you give me clarity as I speak? Would you give everyone here attention as they listen? And uh, Father, would you help us to worship you and glorify you for what you've done in our suffering? And uh, we pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this morning we're going to be looking at... um, six reasons for why God causes or allows suffering in our life. And I've arranged it into three headings for you to better track with me. God uses suffering to save, sanct- uh, save, support, and sanctify. Save, support, and sanctify. And those are three broad categories under which I'll fit six of these um, smaller reasons. And using some resources, I've come up with a list of like 13 different specific reasons why God allows suffering. And I've listed all 13 on your handout, although we'll only get to six of them, uh, if, even, <laughs> if even six of them. So um, with that, let's just jump right into the first reason why God uses suffering in our life, and that is to save. If you have your Bibles, would you turn to Acts chapter 8 with me? Acts chapter 8, we'll look at uh, verse 1. And what I want you to see that from Acts chapter 8 is that the suffering of God's children is one of his means for spreading the gospel. We see that in Acts chapter 8. The context of Acts chapter 8 is the martyrdom of Stephen. You remember in 7, he had just been martyred. And in Acts chapter 8, we see what happens as a result of the martyrdom of Stephen. I'll read in verse 1. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip, when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. And uh, we'll, we'll stop there. But do you get the picture? Do you see God's purpose in suffering? Immediately after the death of Stephen, there arose a tremendous amount of persecution in the city of Jerusalem from the hand of Saul, who was dragging off men and women to prison. And as a result, uh, for good reason, the Christians scattered. They ran as far as they could from the persecution at Saul's hand and they took with them the gospel, right? So everywhere they went, they took the gospel with them. And so we see even here the purpose of God in bringing suffering to the Christians in order to send them out to Judea and Samaria. And just to give you a bigger context in the book of Acts here, you remember when Jesus ascended, he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Okay? Well, through chapter 7 of the book of Acts, the only thing we read about is the growth of the church in Jerusalem. And it seems to imply that the church had not yet spread out into the surrounding region. They were comfortable uh, breaking bread in one another's houses. They were, uh, the church was growing in Jerusalem, and they may not have seen a, a need or an urgency to spread the gospel elsewhere. And so God, in his sovereignty and his goodness, brought this persecution to the church in order to send them out uh, to go and take the gospel and save people in the whole world eventually. And it was all because of the persecution. Um, So, stories like this are still happening today. I'm not sure if you've read any stories about whole people groups like this who have gotten saved through the spreading of the gospel by Uh, refugees. Have you read any stories like that? There's some really great stories, but this isn't necessarily the exact um, application of this is a little bit different here in the United States because we aren't necessarily as persecuted where the gospel spreads out to physical regions, but the principle is still the same. You and I have been in places, haven't we, where the only reason we have been there is because of some amount of suffering or pain that we've gone through. There's places where it seems like the, the admission ticket that, that is required to gain access to that location is some uh, suffering that we've gone through. Things like a, a funeral home, an emergency room in a hospital, or a cancer ward, All of these places, we wouldn't necessarily go on our own choice would it not be for some tremendous amount of suffering that we've experienced. And um, it's more than just a physical placement as well. It seems as though when we are experiencing suffering and we give testimony to the goodness and the sovereignty of God, that our testimony is more believable and credible by people who are listening and observing us when we're going through suffering than if we give glory to God in our um, prosperity and in our peace. So not only is is God repositioning his missionary troops through suffering, but he's also giving us a credible testimony and a more believable testimony when we still express a confidence in God even through the suffering that we go through. And uh, we've seen this even here in our small body in Calvary. Uh, if you've been here for, for more than four years, uh, you remember four years ago when God chose to take uh, James McKenzie from us at the uh, prime age of 30. Do you remember that? Um, when he passed away, a shock wave went out through this church and the whole, Fort Worth, the whole city of Fort Worth. And the question is, why? Why would God take a man, a young man in the prime of his life. Um, and if you were at his, his funeral service, you saw at least a glimpse of why God would do that. There were hundreds and hundreds of people at his service. It was the biggest, bi- biggest service I've ever been to. Hundreds and hundreds of people were there. And every single person who was there heard the gospel. Okay? They heard that they were a sinner. Everyone is going to die, and the only way to be saved is through Christ. What a powerful testimony that may not have been possible if that had not happened. And you can ask the Mackenzies. Uh, they've known of at least two people who have come to saving faith as a direct result of, of James's passing away. Unbelievable how God uses suffering to save, to spread the gospel and to create a a more credible and believable witness from his people. Um, So that's the first reason we want to look at for why does God allow suffering. The second reason, if, if you look, is to support. God uses suffering in our lives to support. And what I mean by that is for us to comfort others in their affliction. And uh, again, if you, if you have your Bible, would you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where we see um, just this one wonderful truth of how God uses our suffering and the comfort that we've received in our suffering. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And I'll start in verse 3. I'll just read verse 3 and 4. Second Corinthians one, verses three and four. I'll take a drink of water quick. Second Corinthians one, three and four says, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction." so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. What a wonderful truth, isn't it? I want, you to, I want to point out just some very small words that you need to see here that are easy to pass over. First of all, I want you to see the word, so that, in verse 4. God comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort others in their affliction. The words so that imply a purpose, a reason why God brings us the comfort. That is to say, God comforts us in our suffering so that we may go and comfort others. The ultimate end of God bringing comfort to us in our suffering is not supposed to just stay with us, but rather is meant to go on to others who have suffered as well. That's the end. The comfort given to us is really just a means of us being able to distribute the comfort to others in their suffering. The other small word I want you to see is the word able. Again, in verse 4. God comforts us in our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. The word able implies ability, right? <laughs> able ability. Again, that is to say that until we have experienced suffering and God has given us comfort in our suffering, we are not necessarily able, in fact, we may be unable, to comfort others who are in their affliction. And it's not, it's not to deny the, um, the sufficiency of Scripture, that is to say, even someone who's never experienced any suffering can still take Scripture and apply it to someone, minister it to someone, and the Holy Spirit can use that to bring comfort. However, if you yourself have never gone through any type of suffering, you may not know which Scripture was most help, is most helpful to someone in their suffering. And so you may be unable or not equipped yet to be effective in ministering to others in their, com- in their affliction. So that's the other uh, small word. The final small word I want you to see is the word any. Again, in verse 4, God comforts us in our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. The purpose that I have in drawing your attention to that word any is just to encourage you that... Um, If you have gone through any type of suffering, you are now equipped and commanded to take the comfort you've received and apply it to any other situation of suffering. Uh, That's not to say that, uh, that's not to deny that there is actually usually a greater bond between believers who have walked a very similar trial. But it's to say that if you've received comfort, you are now able to comfort any to comfort anyone in any type of affliction. So don't feel like you're unable to sympathize with someone because you haven't walked the same exact suffering that they've gone through. So I'll just maybe pause and ask you to think about if you've seen this in your own life, do you remember when a time when you were suffering greatly and someone brought another believer into your life who had gone through deep suffering and they were able to minister comfort to you that they had received out of their own suffering. And also it seems as though God in his providence brings other people into our life after we've been comforted so that we can distribute the comfort to them as well. So those were the first two uh, examples of, of what God is doing in our suffering. He's saving people He's supporting people, the believers. And finally, we'll spend the most time here. He is sanctifying believers. That is, he is changing us from one degree of glory into the image of Christ. And uh, I've got four purposes under, under the heading of sanctifying. Hopefully you're not being confused by my outline. <laughs> but uh, there are four purposes I've, I've put under the heading of sanctify. And the first one I want to show you is that God is testing and strengthening faith in our affliction. To test and strengthen faith. uh, There was a, a Puritan, Thomas Boston, he said this, listen to this quote. Suffering is the great engine of providence for making men appear in their true colors. There's a a frequent metaphor in Scripture related to suffering that's the idea of a smelting process, melting down of metal and refining metal, and I'm really not an expert on metal and the refining process, but from what I understand, metal inherently has impurities inside of it, and when you melt the metal, the impurities rise to the surface, called dross, and then you're able to remove the dross, and the metal is more pure. Well, uh, in the same way, God uses affliction as a crucible, as a furnace, to test and refine our faith. I'll give you one example. Isa- I'll give you two examples. One is Isaiah 48, verse 10. Isaiah forty-eight ten. God says, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. In 1 Peter one six, this is probably the verse that came to your mind when I mentioned this purpose. 1 Peter 1, six. This was so helpful to Jesse and I in our suffering. Peter says, In this you now rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that, that is, in order, here's the purpose that you've been grieved, in order that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by the fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So suffering is the fire, suffering is the crucible that tests faith, first of all, and then secondly, it purifies faith if true faith is found. I want you to consider two examples from Scripture. One is Job. In fact, this was the, this was the, the reason that Job was put to the test in the beginning, was it not? There was this heavenly debate between Satan and God where Satan says, um, basically, Job only follows you because you've given him so much wealth and comfort. Okay? So if you throw him into the furnace of affliction and you, and you take away all of his things, he'll, he'll, his faith will burn up, he'll reject you, and his faith will be shown to be false. And God says, okay, let's throw him into the furnace of affliction and see what comes out. And you remember that when, when Job went into the furnace of affliction, when everything was removed, what came out, what was shown to be revealed was the genuineness of his faith, despite all of his comforts being removed. The other example I want you to think about are the 12 spies that Moses sent into the promised land to test out um, the strength of the enemy right before they were about to go into the promised land. You remember Moses selected 12 men and he sent them in. And my guess is Moses wouldn't have chosen 10 weak men and 2 strong men I'm guessing that Moses would have chosen 12 men, godly men from their appearance, godly men who trusted God, at least verbally. And yet when the 12 spies went into the promised land and they saw the enemy and they saw the fortified cities and how tall they were and how strong they were, 10 of them were shown to be um, false, to have a false faith that didn't pass through the furnace of the affliction. And two of them were shown to have a genuine faith, Joshua and Caleb. And so in the same way that God has used these men, he does that in your and my life. And um, I'm I'm guessing that you have seen this as well. Have you known professing believers who, when they have gone through a, a time of just tremendous suffering, they have rejected the faith and they have turned their back on Christianity? It happens sometimes, okay? Well, what's happening is when they were placed in the furnace of affliction, what was shown was that there was actually no true faith to begin with. On the other hand, have you seen a professing believer who has gone through just incredible suffering and you have just been shocked and amazed at what came out of the suffering? That not only was there shown to be a genuineness of their faith but in fact it was refined and purified in the suffering process so for any of us who emerge from this furnace of affliction uh the credit for for emerging does not belong to us and that's the purpose of first peter one do you see that purpose there he says the tested the tested genuineness of your faith may do what that it may result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is to say that when a believer emerges from the fire uh, with his faith intact, the glory does not go to the lump of metal that made it through the affliction. The glory goes to God for preserving us through the affliction. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. So that's the first sanctifying purpose is to test the genuineness of faith, and then to purify it. The second one I want you to see is to expose hidden sin in our life. Expose hidden sin. The uh, lakes and rivers in, in Texas are not a great example of this, so we'll go to Colorado. In, in Colorado, if you, go, <laughs> if you go to a mountain lake in Colorado, the water is crystal clear, is it not? Um, you'd probably be tempted to drink it. You wouldn't do that in Texas. But in Colorado, you might. However, if you take a stick and just stir up the, the mud and the sediment in that whatever, how, no, it doesn't matter how pristine the river is, the water gets cloudy, and there's no way you would drink the water. Even in Colorado, a mountain lake in Colorado, if you've stirred up the dirt, um, you're revealing uh, something underneath the water. So too, God does this in your and my life, that when we, at times we may appear um, outwardly righteous, things may be going well, God may, in his sovereignty and his goodness, allow us to go through a time of suffering to expose hidden sin that we may not have seen had God not stirred up the water. And uh, Drew and I were just talking about Romans chapter 7 this morning. You can see that clearly in Romans chapter 7. Paul is just at the end of himself. He sees he still has sin inside of him at war every day. And he can't get rid of it. And he cries out, wretched man that I am. Okay, that's the purpose of God revealing sin to us to cause us to see hidden sin. And... um, Kids are really good at this, by the way. If you have kids, you've seen this. The, the example that comes to mind is a jack-in-the-box. Do you remember those? You spin and spin and spin the wheel, and then after a while, what comes out is just terrifying. <laughs> and if you have kids, that's, that's happened to you where you've been pressed and pressed and pressed and pressed, and God is pushing you in this afflicting circumstance. He's pressing you so that... A hidden sin of impatience, of anger, bitterness is revealed that may not have been revealed had your kids been perfect angels, like uh, Jason's kids. <laughs> um, so, what is God's purpose in revealing the sin? Well, it's to bring us to repentance. It's not just to see the misery, the sinfulness of ourselves. That is one of God's purposes, to see that how wretchedly sinful we continue to be even though we've been saved. But it's to draw us to repentance like Job did. Job saw the sin in his life through the course of, of the suffering. You remember there was no suffering that caused, sorry, there was no sin that initially caused Job's suffering. But in the course of his response, sin was revealed. Okay? And at the end of the book of Job, he repents and God restores him and gives him twice as much as he had before. That is the purpose. God is revealing to us hidden sin, driving us to repentance so he can bring in the healing of the gospel again and remind us of the, the comfort and the thankfulness we have that we've been forgiven for all of our sins. There's a reason why Romans chapter 8 comes right after Romans chapter 7. Immediately, Romans chapter 8 verse 1 comes and Paul says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right after he had said, wretched man that I am. So that is the the second purpose of God in our suffering, to reveal hidden sin. The third sanctifying purpose is to see God clearer and to know his word better. To see God clearer and to know his word better. So uh, isn't isn't it so true in your life that the times you have clung most desperately to God, the times you have had perhaps the sweetest communion, have been in the times of deepest suffering that you've gone through, where you've You have nothing else. You have nothing else to hold on to except for God and his word. He does that so we feel our weakness and we come to him to know him better. Just two verses I want you to consider is Psalm 119, verse 67, and verse 71. 119, 67, and 71, where David said, Before I was afflicted, I went astray but now I keep your word. And then verse 71, and it was good for me that I was afflicted. Why, David? Why was it good that that you were afflicted? Here's what he says. It was good that I might learn your statutes. In other words, have not the greatest times of your growth, your spiritual growth in knowing God and understanding his word, have they not come in times of the deepest suffering that you've gone through? You know, when we, have, um, when we have a physical wound, the wound is closed over with a scar. And in the same way, whenever we go through deep suffering, it seems as though God gives us spiritual scars that we remember uh, for the rest of our life and I'm willing to bet if I ask some of you some, about some of the deepest suffering you've gone through even in the past 10 years that you might be able to recall the chapter and the verse of the scripture that you desperately needed in that moment even years later years later Martin Luther said that he could never rightly understand some of the Psalms until he was in affliction Isn't that true? It seems like affliction almost unlocks some of the psalms. We could read them. For example, Psalm 34 says, God is near to the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit. It's a wonderful promise, even if you have never experienced suffering. But uh, it's not until you've had your heart broken and your spirit crushed that you almost unlock that psalm and you understand with a greater level of uh, love for God and his word that how precious that psalm is to you. At the very end of Job's trial, uh, when he had repented, he, he, he said this, Job 42, uh, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, he's talking to God, God, I had heard of you before with the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. It's as though as Job suffered, all of the tears he cried had almost washed his eyes so he could see God clearer. And God does the same thing in your and my life. That's one of God's good purposes in suffering is to draw us closer to himself. Listen to this little poem. I walked a mile with pleasure, she chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word she said, but oh, the things I learned from her. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word said she. Now it'll rhyme. But oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. And uh, God does that in our suffering. He teaches us, draws us closer to himself in our suffering. And finally, I want you to see the fourth sanctifying purpose of God in our suffering. It's to display the power of grace and the weakness of man. And I realize I should have flipped those, but the... Uh, outline had already been printed. God shows us the weakness of man first and then he shows us the power of grace. So the order should be flipped. But if you, are you still in uh, 2 Corinthians 1? If you're, if you're not, if you could turn back to 2 Corinthians 1. Paul continues. This is a wonderful passage of scripture, the whole chapter to read through to see what God is doing in our suffering. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 7. I'm sorry, verse 8. Paul says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And you remember later in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, that, um, I just blanked, I need, to, I'm sorry, <laughs> you try memorizing scripture in front of <laughs> 50 people, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, um, Paul, after the thorn in the flesh, he, he, he asked God to remove the thorn, and God responds, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in weakness, therefore I will bo- boast all the more gladly in my weakness, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So these are strong words from Paul. He says that he was so utterly burdened beyond his own strength that he felt like he had received the death sentence. He was despairing of of life itself. And yet, God had a good purpose in making him feel that way. And have have you and I not felt that way? If you've been in just the most severe amount of affliction, you know that you... You just have no strength at all. You feel as if you were just a little... Um, Pastor Dan uses the example of a little boat out in the ocean of, a, of an enormous storm. You feel like anything could crush you at, the mom, at a moment's notice. But there are, really, there are really three purposes that God has here in Second Corinthians in showing Paul his weakness. One was to reveal it to himself, painfully to reveal Paul's weakness. The second was to cause him to trust in God's strength and power alone. And the third was to give him a voice and a testimony to give the glory to God for any of the visible strength that someone had seen in Paul. And I'm sure that you've seen that yourself in your own suffering. Let me give you another example of, of another man in the Bible, Peter F- uh, Paul felt the sting of his own weakness, and so did Peter probably at a probably at a, at a greater level than Paul did. if you remember, um, Peter denied Christ three times on the night um, the night before his crucifixion or maybe the morning of his crucifixion um, and the, and the, the evening before that Jesus had basically told Peter this was going to happen. And here's this, the story that I want to point you to is in Luke 22, Luke 22:31. 31. Uh, you don't necessarily have to turn there, but Luke 22:31, just so you can write it down. Jesus is talking to Peter, and he says to him, Peter, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Peter is basically a New Testament version of Job. There's this debate, there's this trial between God and Satan. And Satan is saying, I want to sift Peter like wheat because I don't think he's a true disciple of yours. I think if you burn him up in the furnace of affliction, there won't be any metal, any pure metal remaining. And then Jesus responds, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So Jesus knows that Peter will deny him, but Jesus also knows that ultimately Peter's faith will not fail because he gives him instructions on what to do after Peter has repented. He says, after you've repented, go and strengthen your brothers. Back to the second purpose of what God uses our affliction to support But uh, Peter hasn't learned his lesson yet, even with Jesus giving him this warning. Do you see Peter's response? Peter says to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. So Peter is relying on his own strength. He's saying, no, I'll go with you. Whatever happens, I'll go with you, Lord. What he's doing is he's highlighting the exact reason why God is sending him into the furnace of affliction. He has much too much confidence in his own strength and his ability to stand in a day of trial. And so God, in his sovereignty and his goodness, allows Peter to go into this trial that Peter will never forget. But yet, what is the reason why Peter did not ultimately fall away from God? Was it because Peter was a very strong man? No, it wasn't. It's explicitly stated here the reason why Peter does not fail is because Jesus Christ was praying for him that his faith wouldn't fail. And it's the same for you and I. The reason that Job, Paul, Peter, you and me do not fall away in the time of trial is not because we are strong men and women. It's because we're weak men and women who have God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son interceding for us so that no one is able to snatch us out of God's hands. And Jesus is interceding for us that he will never let us go. So God helps us in our strength, and nothing can separate us from the love of God, even in the most painful persecution and suffering. So Peter would have never forgotten when he had denied Christ three times, but he never also would have forgotten when, when, um, when Jesus had restored Peter and had forgiven him. And, and that's why God does that in our life, to, to break us of our own self-reliance and our strength so that we can be a vessel fit for use for his purposes. Let me just give you um, it, one kind of concluding exhortation. It's Fairly common when you're going through suffering to hear people say, I can't believe how strong you are. You know, you're so strong for going through this as a Christian. Uh, It's fairly common to hear that when you're going through suffering. And I would just encourage you to use that opportunity to say, "You, you have no idea how incredibly weak I am right now. And if there's any strength you see, it's coming from God who's supplying the power and the strength to me. And again, as I said, God uses our testimony, almost gives us credibility of our testimony during suffering and affliction, that he can use that message to spread the gospel. So what a, what a wonderful truth these are. Um, there's many other purposes. I mean, we've only scratched the surface. And I've listed, if you see on your handout, I've listed a few more purposes of affliction, and I really won't even mention those. But uh, they're there if you want to dig into them some more. Let me encourage you in conclusion to do three things, okay? Three things. The first one is take this opportunity to think back over some of the suffering you have gone through with what we've talked through here and try to understand what purposes has God had in my life through this suffering and affliction I've gone through. Jonathan Edwards, he was famous for his resolutions. One of his resolutions was this resolved after afflictions to inquire what I am the better for them and what good I have got by them and what I might have got by them. So would you use this opportunity this afternoon even to look back and think about some of the suffering you've gone through and ask God to, to reveal some of the, the fruit he has produced in your life and then turn it back to praise to him. Second thing I'd encourage you is as you have opportunity to ask other brothers and sisters in the body, you know, what affliction have you gone through and what are some of the good purposes that you've seen uh, God produce in your life through it? And again, you know, be sensitive because this necess- may not necessarily be a great question to ask when someone is in the midst of suffering. There's a different way to, to respond and love to someone who's in the midst of it. But if there's been a time, a, a time of healing that's passed, it may, it be, it may be a wonderful, god going god-glorifying opportunity for you to discuss some those things and the third thing i want you to encourage you is to pick up this book (laughs) i told you last week to come get one from me and no one came and got one so i put them at the back there pastor dan's holding one up (laughs) this is by that great presbyterian theologian john murray it's a small little book called behind the frowning providence And it summarizes everything we're going to be talking about over these three weeks. God's sovereignty and his goodness and his purposes in affliction. So there's copies back there, and um, please take one. If if there's none left, we'll get some more for you. Let me close with this hymn from from John Newton. John Newton's the one who wrote Amazing Grace. I've got it on your hand out there. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I had hoped that in some favored hour he'd, uh, one, at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds, and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answered prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me amen would you you pray with me father we do thank you that you've not left us without answers as to why you cause allow suffering in our life father i pray that you would bring um, fresh remembrance of your goodness in our past suffering this morning to this body Pray, Father, that you would comfort those who are here who may be hurting from a fresh wound this morning. And, uh, Father, would it all be to your praise of the, of the power of your grace and your goodness. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.